0: Seminar. I'm very pleased to introduce Alexandra Bruce Slade um, from from Arizona State University, from the School of Human Evolution and Social Change, and the ASU Mayo Clinic Obesity Solutions. And she's going to be talking about weight stigma and complexifying how we think about about weight stigma. So, Alex. Well, maybe you'll (laughs) simplify. We can hope. Thank you. So thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I am going to talk today about uh, some research we've been doing in the last uh, four years, I guess, is about how long I've been thinking about this. Um, I have these two affiliations. I'll talk a little bit about obesity solutions if I have time at the end. Uh, The School of Human Evolution and Social Change is uh, a large, school that is in the social sciences that has a bunch of anthropologists in it but also a bunch of political scientists and computer scientists and uh, different types. So we work in a very interdisciplinary environment on an everyday basis and you'll see that that really influences the type of questions that we ask. So I wanted to start with a very basic model and then sort of um, disassemble that a little bit and start looking at the elements of it but this I just hand drew this is the real numbers associated with what you see but essentially what is the relationship between wealth and weight and I'm going to come (laughs) back to this through my talk so I just wanted to show you what sort of basic model is so if you think about increasing wealth on this arc and increasing weight on this um, axis What you see across populations and through time is that you have populations where everyone's essentially too poor or doesn't have sufficient resources to gain weight at all, and we still have a few populations like that around the globe, but not so many. And then what you see is as uh, populations grow in wealth, weight tends to go up, and then Where you get real wealth, you see that weight tends to come down again because people have the resources to actually control weight. So it's sort of the basic model. And you kind of see it cross-sectionally within societies too. So for example, in the US now you get uh, in higher income sections of society, the weight is lower versus, uh, with an increasing association of weight with poverty. Once you get past a certain level of overall wealth. Okay, so that's the sort of standard model. A few other observations with this is that bodies are getting fatter globally. That's a well transnational global phenomenon. Big bodies are becoming normative in a lot of places. Uh, In the US now, it's two-thirds of adults are overweight. The normative body now is an overweight body. Um, And the final thing that this is is interesting, you shape relationship as well. So there's three starting assumptions. So the question that we're really interested in is how does this set of phenomena, length phenomena, relate to changes in body norms? And by body norms, I mean how people feel and think and talk about big bodies, small bodies, average-sized bodies, and so on. Is there a relationship? Do people change the way they think about bodies on these arcs? So this is what we see from the body image literature very roughly. If you look at the cross-cultural literature on body image and thin idealism, what you basically see is that uh, cross-culturally is that as countries become wealthier, they tend to like slimmer and slimmer bodies and have more of a gap between the size people think they are and the size they want to be. However, even if you go into some of the not the very, very low-income countries, but when you're sort of in the lower (coughs) to middle-income countries, you still see there's a very high thin preference across the board, but it does go up. So we think there's this type of relationship between growing thin preference and um, growing growing weight and growing wealth. So one of the things that's interesting is that even as people start being able to lose weight, the thin preference just keeps going up. So these people that are losing weight here, the sort of the wealthy and the wealthy countries have some of the highest thin preferences. But we're flipping around and we're really looking at this phenomenon that I call weight stigma or fat stigma. And fat stigma uh, is looking at how people not react to slim bodies, but how they react to big bodies in particular. And what you find in um, Western settings, particularly most of the states have done in the US, is that There's this very strong, pervasive, moralising discourse around bodies that associates them with things, with with fat bodies, that associates them with things like being lazy, uh, being dirty, being sexless, being unattractive, that are uh, tied into a range of discrimination. Um, We see that people that are uh, obese have lower rates of... Uh, getting into colleges they want, or jobs, promotions, and so on, so there is a sort of structural consequence of that. It seems very much tied to the fact that in advanced industrialized society, the body itself becomes the major identity anchor, so who you are becomes defined by your body, and this is very linked to this notion, for those of you who are aware of any of the literature on obesity, you know that, that one of the issues we have is that uh, the way that obesity is framed within our society is this notion of individual blame. So the reason you are overweight is because you don't do what you're meant to do. And this sort of permeates how uh, obesity is dealt with as a, as a medical issue. Um, there are some dual models in there, but we can get to that later if we have time. Okay, so that's sort of the notion of weight stigma. It's very pervasive. When I do studies, even within college student populations, you'll find that the rates are very, very high. Um, education predicts higher rates of weight stigma in a lot of ways. It's a very powerful set of ideas. So we did some studies with our students at ASU, which is the largest undergraduate um, research institution in the US, um, uh, kind of typical, in a way, of a public institution. and. Um, we had about 25% of students that said they would rather be blind than obese. There's a very high level of stigma um, being expressed in that trade off decision. So, this is part of this bigger question. This is focus on weight stigma is part of this bigger question that I'm trying to ask about, as biocultural anthropologist, about how stigma and weight are related to one another. So, I started sort of musing on this question about. Does obesity stigma actually reproduce obesity? And this is kind of interesting because the sort of the medical model, if you like, is that stigma actually reduces obesity. If you tell someone they need to do better and you wag finger, that that will help them lose weight. And uh, it's also a model that plays out in many families and um, so on. You know, if you tell people that they need to do it better, that they need to take responsibility, that they need to exercise and eat better, that that helps them lose weight. And we know empirically that actually, probably the opposite is true. But I was sort of starting to think through this notion of how, or what are these pathways whereby stigma might reproduce uh, obesity? So I think there's at least four different pathways that I could identify. If anyone can think of any more, that would be great. Okay, so the first one here, in orange here, is that people who are overweight feel stigmatized, so they avoid stigmatizing situations, which then leads to differences in diet, and exercise and reproduces obesity. And I'll give you an example of what this might look like. So I was talking to a woman the other day that came to one of our functions, and she said she doesn't like going to the gym because when she's on the machine, she's a big woman, when she's on the machine, she said, if I hear someone laugh, like I know intellectually they might not be laughing at me exercising, but she says, emotionally, I always feel like they're laughing at me. So I'm uncomfortable going and exercising in public spaces. So, you know, so that, you know, is a good example, someone feels stigmatized. So they avoid stigmatizing situations like going to gym. So that actually changes their uh, diet and exercise um, behaviors. Another good example of that is healthcare uh, utilization is people that feel stigmatized when they go to the doctor's offices and they don't they don't they say, I don't want to go there and get lectured to, then don't go to the doctor. That's my mother in law. She's totally in that loop. She's a big doctor in ten years. Okay, so um, that's one sort of loop. It's sort of people are aware of it, they're self aware, and they're modifying their behaviour. Okay. Then there's uh, the biosocial stress pathway for those of you that are more um, biologically oriented is that we know that, and we know this from the race literature, so there's a lot of great race literature, particularly the work of uh, Lance Bradley, for those of you who are aware of. If you feel stigmatised and you know you're being discriminated against, or even if you just feel you're being discriminated against, that causes physiological stress physiological stress has two pathways to obesity. One is is that physiological stress can make you change behaviours. For example, comfort eating, get stressed out so you eat. Or physiological stress in and of itself can create metabolic changes in the body that lead to obesity. Right. So there's at least two ways that physiological stress can reinforce obesity. So, if, so there's another way that stigma can um, reinforce obesity or reproduce obesity. Okay, and then you have a more structural model for those of you who are more politically, economically inclined. If you are discriminated against, this is if you are discriminated against, that really does change the economic circumstances and the opportunities that you're exposed to. So if people are less likely to be offered jobs, they're less likely to be promoted, they're less likely to get into the college that they want to get into, then there's actually a downward mobility association with that, so people can block your access and opportunities, leading to poverty. We know that poverty is associated with more obesogenic environments, which constrain your exercise and diet. For example, uh, less good places to exercise, less good food environments, or food at a good cost. So that would be sort of a political economic pathway. Uh, And then a final pathway that I sort of was playing with was this idea that you know getting there is the same. You get down into sort of uh, living under conditions that are somewhat uncertain or insecure, or uh, more likely to be in poverty. Is that that can actually have an intergenerational effect? For anyone who knows the literature on um, uh, life history theory, it can actually create intergenerational changes in. Metabolism. Um, if you have worse maternal condition during pregnancy, because you're living under conditions of physiological stress, uh, physio, physiological action, <laughs> psychosocial stress that comes with uncertainty. I need to put psychosocial stress in. But anyway, so I think there's at least four ways that we can conceptualise that obesity and stigma. And then stigma can reinforce obesity. So why we need to be concerned about it? I'm still playing with this a little bit, but um, so there's a lot. So when you'll see on our work, we're mostly up here at this point. We're just on the behavioural side, but I'm trying to figure out ways to build in better ways of testing all of these. Um, but we're really just starting over here, trying to get this stuff sorted out at this point. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit about some of the work I've done. Um, this first study I've done mostly with a cultural anthropologist called Amber Woodage, uh, who is a, one of the best methodologists, um, I think, in cultural anthropology today. Uh, I'm very lucky to get to work with her. Um, we did it, So what happened in 2009 when I was thinking through some of these issues to do with how culture and biology and obesity are shifting globally, I thought, well, if I'm going to start working in this area, I really need to go and find some places where the stigma around obesity is not as pronounced. So, so we went out one summer and we just did this blitz survey in a whole bunch of places where we had field sites. Um, to see where we could pick up what the stigma was lost, because then I was going to start looking at stuff like uh, stress response and so on. I had this great plan. So we developed a cultural survey tool that we developed ethnographically. This was an interview-based study, and we went out to a whole bunch of different places across the globe. Um, let's see, Phoenix, Mexico, that must be Guatemala, Puerto Rico, Argentina, Bolivia, Iceland, UK, uh, Tanzania, New Zealand and there's American Samoa. So some of these are places that historically have very high rates of obesity. Uh, Some of them are places that historically have really valued large bodies, so so the ethnography like um, American Samoa. it was just designed to sort of give us a, a very basic sort of take on what was going on. These are the students. We had students. Look, I sent them out to collect London, data in London, and I said, take some photos while you're collecting data, and that's what they came back with. <laughs> so there you go. Not quite what I meant, but uh, nonetheless, they got some photos of them in London. This is a... a uh, Mexico, Paraguay, and New Zealand. Right. So wonderful global health students that help us with a lot of stuff. Okay. So those are the findings that we got, but they were not what we expected at all. Uh, we did not expect Paraguay, for God's sake, to have the highest stigma levels, fat stigma levels, where people said the the worst things about fat. With no filtering at all, and I certainly didn't expect American Samoa to have higher stigma levels than the US, for heaven's sake, which was one of the lower ones. Um, So these were very interesting findings where Mexico, American Samoa, and Paraguay are places that supposedly were not expected to be fat judging, which was so it's very interesting. So we're trying to make sense of that, but. Essentially, when you put it in the model with the wealth gradient stuff, what you see is is that, based on this set of countries, is that it, it seems to track the weight gain pattern in the sense that as weight is going up, you know, a stigma is lower, at the point where you've got these middle income countries where the, the rate of gain is very fast is that you have the highest fat stigma, and then when you start to see that differentiation where very high income is associated with declining weight, there's less stigma. Okay, so that was kind of interesting. So we thought, what earth is going on? So, and if you put it with a thin preference, it's like fat stigma is not behaving the same way as thin preference. It's going down again, whereas thin preference just keeps going up. So we're like, okay, that's interesting, because I just assumed that those things would model similarly. Um so we said, you know, the next set of studies we did was what does the apparent contrast between fat stigma and thin preference signify? What's going on cross culturally? So we had some clues because uh, Amber had worked very long term uh, in Paraguay and is actually married to a Paraguay office star, so she has lots of good um, uh, contacts that she can talk about bodies with. Um, so we thought, well, we'll go back and the we'll original data collection in Paraguay. And, you know, we've worked a lot with the students in Phoenix, so we sort of know them. Um, we did this next part of the study where Eileen anderson I wanted to work on body image in Belize. Um, oh, I can't even collect the data there. Oh, that's Jamaica. India in Nepal, I think, yes, and Bolivia. So we also have a field station in Bolivia. So we thought it'd be interesting to collect something right by Paraguay, because that was the highest. So we thought we'll go see what's going on in Bolivia, which is a very different um, social context. The cultural context is sort of similar. The political context is really different between the two countries. Okay, so in this study, what we did is we said, okay, well, maybe what people are saying and what they're thinking is not the same thing. So I was sort of interested that why would Brits and Americans not be saying as much stigmatising stuff as <coughs> people in the middle income countries. So we thought, well, maybe that's a political correctness factor. So maybe what people are learning is just that you're not meant to say it, not that they're not meant to say it. So we said, right, we really need to go out and we need to associate what people are saying and what they're thinking. Uh, and the way we decided to get to this was by using what's called an implicit association test. So the implicit... Yes? Just a question. Um, In these comparisons between countries, were you standardising for uh, uh, income and social class? Yes, so we put that into the models. I'll show you some data at the end where we've actually put those into the models and how it comes out. So um, education level did predict higher stigma levels. Gender did not. So, the way we did this is that there's these implicit association tests. I don't know if any of you have taken them or you've seen them, but they use them a lot for testing implicit racism. So basically, you flip words or images up and people have to link, you tell them, you know, you need to put fat with bad or fat with good and thin with good or thin with bad, so you give them instructions. And then the underlying assumption is that if people think something over and over again, it becomes those pathways, those cognitive pathways become very practiced so they can do that matching much faster. So if people can match, it's a reaction time test, if people can match fat with bad at twice the speed that they can match fat with good, then the underlying sort of rationale Is that that means they're more practising thinking that? So you're sort of dipping into that sort of level of cognitive function.
1: It's a big assumption,
0: as we'll get to in time when I show you how the data actually play out. But it's getting at something different, a different construct than what people say. And it has been shown that with um, with this type of testing around racism is that it better predicts people's behaviours than does uh, the standard, you know, interview questionnaires, right? So if people that then test, to you know, how close they'll sit to someone, um, it actually does better predict actual behaviour. And they've seen that somewhat with their obesity literature as well, is that people that score lower on the scale are more likely to sit closer to an obesity. Disorder. So this is what it looks like, actually, in this stage of the project we used... Um, Paper pencil because we hadn't done this cross culturally before, so we really wanted to see what was happening. We could do better, um, cognitive, uh, we could figure out better on the ground what was happening than if we just used a sort of black box computer system. So we used a um, a pencil system where people have 20 seconds to click as many as they can. um, Mm -hmm. 20 seconds, yes, and put them into the right categories, and then you you see how far they can go down the list uh, in that times. It's a very simple test actually. Now we're doing it all on computer, but we started off doing a paper now. Oh, this is what the computer interface looks like, but without the picture in the middle. Okay, so what we saw when we so we this is the standard interview questions. Um, so basically what we saw was, if you ask people questions about how they feel about fat, you know, like attitude questions, our ASU undergraduates, so, these are here, are the, these are prior studies. So, this here is uh, National Association for Fat Acceptance People. But the ASU undergraduates had the lowest stigma scores on those standard scales. Paraguay was the highest, which is what we'd seen using our cultural, uh, culturally developed tool. Then, uh, Belize, Nepal, and Jamaica were all higher than the US and very similar to one another. So it was kind of what we'd seen using a more ethnographically developed tool in the prior study. But this is what the cognitive data showed. They showed that the very high rates, much higher rates in the US undergraduates, and in Belize, which we can't explain ethnographically. um, In Nepal, it was negative in the sense that people in Nepal using the paper pencil test actually were more positive about fat bodies than about thin ones. Uh, and in Jamaica, and then in Paraguay, it was neutral. Like, so, the average in uh, Paraguay was a neutral, not either positive or negative about fat bodies. So, so what you see using the IAT is actually a lot more cross cultural variation than you see using the um, interview tools. So, you're like, oh, this is really interesting. There's a big difference across cultures of what people say and what they think. Like, everyone's basically saying the same thing, but they're thinking different things. And this is a really complicated model, just to show some of those cross-cultural variations. So you have, so for example, the US University students have very high levels on the implicit association test, um, but lower levels on what they say, but they're not willing to make trade-offs. This is this question about would you rather be blind, would you rather be, they have like six options, blind, lose a limb, uh, no divorced. one has that sort of thing. Yeah. Of of yeah. Uh, and how how many years of life would you be willing to give up to be obese? And this was a really interesting question because American students are generally willing to give up some years of life to not be obese. It might be one or it might be five. Paraguayans thought this was the most idiotic question they had ever heard. <laughs> and no one said anything but zero. It was like zeroes across the board. They're like, that is the dumbest question ever. Why would anyone give up life not to be obese? That's stupid, they said. So they basically came in and, and <coughs> averaged zero with no variance on that question. But you see big, cross population differences in that. Oh, we actually collected a sample of US Muslim women, which was kind of interesting because you'll see, so these are university students up here, but the US Muslim women, had uh, very low rates of implicit... Um, so there's huge sub-population differences within these countries, you can just see. Okay, so this is what we think is actually going on then when we're modelling this, so with fat stigma, is what people say, but what people think actually looks a lot more like the... Um, okay, so it looks a lot more like that thin preference line, actually. Um, so when you get into the implicit attitudes, it does seem that they really don't moderate at all war as people get wealthier. So then we start thinking about, okay, how do we explain this pattern? Um, what might explain why some people are much more, uh, have much higher rates of implicit attitude, you know, implicitly, implicit fact stigma and others. So we went back to the body image literature and from the body image literature, we came up with this idea that upward mobility, using the body as a tool of upward mobility might really explain this. So it might be that in places in times that the body is a useful upward mobility tool and um, that might explain why some people really internalize these ideas. And I heard that you had Alex Edmonds come and talk last year. in Brazil on cosmetic surgery. Yeah, so that, this is really coming from some of his work. Um, you see in his work this notion that the reason that people invest so heavily in body surgery in Brazil is because they're literally using the body as a tool for upward mobility. I mean, literally the body. Um, so we thought, well, maybe that will work. So we said, all right, we'll do a, another cross-cultural study, but we'll start with working out the protocol at ASU just outside my office. Because we and, and, and students are interesting because they're incredibly, utterly mobile populations. So we're gonna start looking at students <laughs> specifically. Um, so we had to design a study, which was not easy. We wanted to do population representative sampling, uh, which proved to be so hard. We did it, but it was really hard, <laughs> because you can't really do that on a campus through email you can't, you know, the only way we could really do that was by using a um, transect sampling. So we walked, um, very, you know, like randomly selected transects across campus, so we did it spatially. It took so long, oh my god, it was really hard. <laughs> um, and we actually ended up with a sample that was representative of the sample of, students, you know, I mean, of the total students in the university in terms of age, stage. It does and so on. But it was really, really took a long time. It took us all semester to, to do like 200 interviews, which was like, for me, consider it was outside the window of my time, was really frustrating. Okay, but we got it. And then when I ran the data, I thought, oh, I'm gonna find all sorts of interesting papers. Well, uh, it's not always the case, is it? So um, this was uh, a model where we were testing how a number of factors. So this is um, upward mobility. Is one of our measures of upward mobility. Uh, and we had background measures that were to do with um, when your parents went to college, and uh, family SES and stuff like that, how you were paying for college. Um, but this one was really key is, is what were people really hoping for in life and then controlling for things like family background, minority status, whether you're first or second generation college student and that sort of thing. Uh, BMI obviously needs to be controlled in the model. And we measured a uh, number of outcomes. One was implicit fat stigma, which was the IAT. One was explicit fat stigma, which was the interview questions. And then another we used uh, standard thin... You know those the stuck at the um, little bodies where people choose which body they want to be, which size a body, which scale, and in all of this, we found that nothing, not one of these factors, predicted the IAT results, which is really frustrating for me because they were all meant to predict that. Um, the only thing that predicted what people said on the uh, standardized interview thing was gender. Um, and yet, the key variable that I thought would predict the IAT only th- only predicted thin idealism. But remember, I said I took that model from the body image literature. So at least we know we were doing it right. Uh, it worked for, for the, the thin literature, but it didn't work for the fat stigma stuff. So that was very frustrating. Okay. And then I also thought, well, let's look at how these things are shaping behavior, um, which was going back to that stigma model. I showed at the beginning. So, controlling for all of these variables down here, um, implicit stigma did, did, in fact, this is the IT data, did actually predict perceived health levels, and that the higher, more stigmatizing people were, the, the worse they thought their health was. Um, then idealism did actually predict dietary behavior. People were more likely to be doing food controlling behaviours if they had slimmer ideas. And neither affected um, exercise. So nothing super exciting, they're not really getting to the crux of what we think this fat stigma thing is, 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 uh, how it's working. So where are we so far with this work? What shapes variation in fat stigma? We're still trying to go back to the board a bit more and think about uh, we need better theories. Um, How is fat stigma related to our body size? Uh, What we have found in our studies is that being fatter and experiencing discrimination does not decrease people's level of stigma. Which is really stigma towards other people? Well, just stigma towards fat in general, so self and others. Um, Is fat fear linked to variation in behaviours around diet and exercise, Uh, to food but not to exercise, and to food only a little. And how are these linked to upward mobility and aspirations? Not any instantly obvious way. Uh, So that's where we are, this is a work in progress. I just want to tell you about one other really cute study that we've just done, It's I think about to come out somewhere. One of my colleagues, Jonathan Marpin, who runs our field school in Guatemala, I met Medanthro field school in Guatemala, got kind of interested in what we were doing and said, I want to go do something in my field site. So I said, okay, there's some tools. So off he went. And I got really interested in this question about how this might play out in a food insecure environment, like in Guatemala. And he was really interested in the kids. So we did a study with eight to 12 year old kids in the school there. And this is sort of going back to that basic argument in the body image in the anthropology of body image literature, where they said that, um, and this is sort of Brown and Connor's. Uh, they took all the Haraf data, the Human Relations Area Files data, and they looked at all the, the sort of the paleographic spectrum, and they said that fat preferring societies were the food insecure ones, and thin preferring societies were the food secure ones. So we thought. Oh, this is interesting. I wonder how it works in a sort of a food insecure environment in terms of kids' um, evolving connection to thin versus fat ideas. So this is what we found, well, let me see if I can explain this. So that what we did was we did what's called a character attribution task. So we, we took four different sized bodies, you know, fat, thin, and in between, like no, three, six. Three male, three female. And then we had children put words together with them. So there was a list of words that had been uh, locally extracted in, in preliminary interviews. And then kids had to circle the words that fit each body. So, and they were presented in a random order. So they first, you know, they're presented with the body and then they had to circle the words that went with that body. Um, and, and the words were both positive, happy, hard worker, strong, healthy, intelligent, sociable, nice, and active, And, and Ones that were locally considered to be negative, bad character, angry, like self-esteem, ugly, lazy, sick, and depressed. And there's a lot of um, mess there. But what you can see is, you see this red this is the thin bodies. So there was lower description of uh, positive attributes to the thin bodies. And uh, more negative attributions towards thin and overweight bodies and fewer to normal-sized bodies. And what we found when we put uh, household food insecurity into the model was that food insecurity predicted thin avoidance, um, which makes sense. But children on the whole always weight for average bodies. They ascribe much more positive things to average bodies than overweight bodies. So there's sort of this tendency to really uh, prefer average bodies, not chubby bodies at all. So... This is where I think we are right now with our model. So what we see in low-income, food-insecure environments is that people actually don't like fat bodies. They like average bodies. Uh, and they don't like thin bodies. Right? So so there's a sort of now model, this is what people think, not what people say. So this is where we are so far. So we've come a little way to sort of um, articulating theoretically what we think is going on. Um, so just before I stop, I just wanted to tell you the other part about what we're doing in case you have any questions about this. So the sort of first part of me talking about is I work in the School of Human Evolution and Social Change but we also have this whole other arm of what we're doing called Obesity Solutions that we're doing with the Mayo Clinic, which I just discovered the other day is actually the Mayo Clinic-ASU Obesity Solutions Initiative. I was corrected. I need to change my tag on my. <laughs> I need to the thing. Um, uh, I have to change the tag on my um, email to make that correct. Uh, but this is a really interesting um, initiative because it's really trying to move rights out. Uh, so a lot of the research we're doing has practical implications. But like a lot of anthropology, the sort of the the translation of that work into immediate (coughs) tangible results is very difficult, and we struggle with it. So in fact, the way that we're moving beyond that frustration is to essentially have this whole other arm to what we do, which is where we take basic intuition that comes with domain expertise, as opposed to the findings of specific research, and then move that into translation. So uh, one of the other things I'm doing with that is really trying to put some of these um, types of ideas into how we're going to deal with individuals in clinical settings. Uh, And moving straight into uh, trying to figure some of that out. So obesity solutions is a very practical initiative. It's really focused on the notion that we need to do more to find solutions for obesity that work for real people in the real world. I mean, obviously part of that is figuring out if obesity is a problem at all. But you know it's a multi-billion dollar industry and it's a multi-million dollar granting environment and yet almost nothing works Um, and I think we need to take more responsibility for coming up with stuff that does work or or we can suggest what the best investments are. So that's the other part of what I spend my time doing and that's pretty much all I have to share with you today. So how does question time usually work? Um, I stand up and... Uh, they, ask they ask questions. there ask questions. Thank well, you, go thanks problem. Nice. Thank you very much.